Welcome to the Evolve to Succeed podcast. I am Warren Munson, the host of the podcast, where founders, entrepreneurs, business leaders and experts from a variety of sectors are interviewed to explore the link between personal and business success. In line with Evolve's principles, we also look at the importance of personal development, accountability and collaborative support in the pursuit of meaningful success. Through the insights of our guests, as well as my own business journey, the aim is to inspire you, the listener, to become better in life and in business. Hello and welcome to this week's episode, in which we hear the fascinating story and journey of Steve Bolton, well-known entrepreneur, investor, speaker, author, and philanthropist. Steve, like lots of entrepreneurs, left school at the age of 16, but has gone on to start several highly successful businesses in a number of different markets and verticals. The story hasn't been always a smooth one either, as we learn through his honest account during the course of this conversation. He is currently the CEO of Bolt Partners. Bolt maximizes the impact, value and profit in British direct-to-consumer brands. Steve's infectious enthusiasm for life and business, as well as his determination to help others succeed, make him great company. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation with him. So in this podcast, Steve talks about how vital it is for a business to have a firm grasp on its numbers. I've never met a really successful business person that is not really strong or has a core member of their team that really understands the numbers of their business discusses the important role that learning and self-development plays in a person's success. Dig into most successful people and you will find they have a massive bias for learning um, about business, the economy, money, personal development, whatever it might be that they're interested in. And how his mother's actions inspired his passion for philanthropy. We'd be driving along, she'd stop outside of the bus stop and you know, there'd be two two ladies there. And she'd go, you're going to bingo, ladies? And they'd be like, yeah, jump in. So she'd save them the bus fare and we'd have these two ladies in the back of the car. If you want to know more about Evolve and the services that we offer, then please do go to evolvemembers.com. But for now, let's get on with the show. Welcome, Steve, to the Evolve to Succeed podcast. Thanks, Warren. Great to be here. Yeah, great to have you as a guest. I suppose I'm going to kick off um, doing a bit of research and background on your journey, your story, Steve. Uh, and I was able to read that at the age of eight, you were encouraged by your dad to follow stocks and shares. And then by the age of 13, you were writing your own computer programs um, to predict horse races. And therefore, at 16, left school. I suppose my initial question has to be, you know, were you always destined, therefore, to run your own business? What happened next after leaving school? Yeah, uh, was I destined? I didn't. I don't think at that age, I didn't see it at all as starting my own business. I just saw it as making money. Um, my parents weren't particularly rich. And whenever I wanted a new bike or something like that, it's like, no, you can't have it. So I think I just got um, fed up of uh, not not being able to get what I wanted. Um, and I think also my, um, my dad was a professional footballer. He played for Bournemouth and Ipswich okay. Town. Um, and then when he retired, my mum, he bought, uh, him and my mum bought a hairdressing shop and they did it up. So they used to get me and my sisters to sort of count all the coins and put them into bags for the bank. And, yeah. 
you know, would, would, so I saw them, I guess, from quite a young age, being entrepreneurial, starting a business, um, was fascinated with sort of money and yeah, stocks and shares. We used to go horse racing. Uh, and it sounds glamorous writing a computer program at the age of 13, but yeah. it was like literally a basic program that added up the numbers in the previous races and averaged them. And the one with the highest number um, okay. was the one that won. But interestingly, the first time I ran it, it predicted the first, second and third in the first horse race. <laughs> and I went to my dad and I said, dad, I've cracked it. You know, we're, we're going we're to be millionaires. <laughs> And it never worked again. So uh, there we go. <laughs> there we are. <laughs> Brilliant. And then, as I understand, you got into the kind of, you know, industry of outdoor training, you know, outdoor pursuits. Yeah, um, I had a few dead-end jobs when I left school. I think school I just wasn't academic. It just didn't mm. suit me being, a, you know, in a class of 35 lads at Winton Boys School, um, learning about the Great Plains of Canada. I just saw no relevance to it whatsoever. Um, so yeah, started washing dishes in a greasy spoon cafe on Bournemouth beach, uh, in the summer. Then I graduated to stacking shelves in the Safeway supermarket in Bournemouth from eight in the evening till seven in the morning. Um, and yeah, never really what I wanted to do, but I just loved the fact that I could turn up, do a day's work, get paid for it at the end of the week. Um, and then it was actually, I, I met a friend of my mum's who actually became, apart from my parents, my first mentor. Um, okay. And she gave me, I was in my mum's hairdressing shop in, in Winton High Street. And this old lady came in asking for directions to the nearest supermarket. And I explained to this lady, you know, how to get there. And my mum's friend just basically said, look, I've got an apprenticeship for the summer in Lyme Regis, teaching kids outdoor pursuits. And I'd like to um, you know, I'd like to offer you the opportunity to do it. It's only £25 a week, seven days a week, uh, work, live in digs. So that's what I did, packed my bags, went to Lyme Regis. But I found out about 10 years later that there wasn't actually a job and she was doing it as a favour to my mum and she paid <laughs> me out of her own pocket. Um, and, wow. uh, yeah, her name was Dee, Dee, Dean, you're right. And she was, um, I'm still in touch with her now, but she was my first mentor that kind of saw something in me believed in me invested in me and that was really the the course of the uh course of my career really a sort of life-changing moment wow and we'll return to that subject and mentors once or twice because i know it's a key theme of yours so i yeah. want to um have a discussion later on in the podcast about mentors because as i said i know it's a, a key theme for you so was it about 10 years working in that kind of environment and then you started your own business or you know co-founded a business in the sector yeah, exactly. I sort of worked my way up at the age of 20. I was sort of managing 20 staff, running the outdoor pursuits division at two centers yeah. over in Swanage. Um, and then basically got headhunted to go and start an outdoor pursuit center from scratch over in uh, Brentscombe Farm Outdoor Center in near Corfe Castle. Um, okay. Did that for three years with a retired Navy pilot who had money and time on his hands. Um, promised me shares in the business, which actually never came. So that was that was kind of quite frustrating. So I put my heart and soul into that. Um, really enjoyed it, but basically realized I wasn't going to become a business owner. Um, was sort of let down on that commitment, and but had the bug to sort of want to do it myself. Um, and then there, we were taking kids at that time and adults to a, a high and low ropes course, um, you know, death slides, climbing walls built in the woodlands. You see them at center parks. 
And yeah. so he built one and I thought it was brilliant. The kids loved it. Um, so I wrote him a letter. I read a book, actually. I read a book by Tony Robbins, um, this kind of American sort of business personal mm-hmm. development guru. And I thought, you know, there was a load of stuff in there that just turned me off. But I really liked the chapter about money and business. And it said the wealthiest people in the world are the ones that own their own businesses. They're not employees. They employ other people and they leverage other people's time, money, all of that sort of thing. So I wrote this guy a letter saying, I love what you've built. I think we should build them everywhere. You build them. I'll do the marketing. Do you want to go in business together? We had dinner, shook hands at the end of dinner, became business partners. Um, And so I worked from sort of seven in the morning till seven in the evening in my day job as an outdoor pursuits center manager. Um, And then I worked from, we, you know, have a bite to eat at seven o'clock. And then I'd work from sort of 7.30 through to about two, three in the morning, get out the next day, you know, and I did that for six months doing about three, four, five hours sleep, worked really hard. Um, and then I was making more on the ropes course business than I was from my my uh, my boss. And it was one of my most pleasing moments to go to him and say, I can no longer afford to work here anymore. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, and that that was it. So, yeah, um, sort of mid 20s, started my own business with uh, with a business partner. And would you, is that advice you'd give to others start thinking about starting their business to transcend from sort of, you know, they're in a, in a job now looking to start their business. Do you think there is a set way of perhaps running in this kind of, you know, there's a lot of people and gurus and I don't like the term, but this kind of side hustle thing, start yeah. the thing on the side, see yeah. what happens, then give up the income stream. Or do you just go balls out and in? What, what advice would you give? Um, do you know what? I think, well, and with most questions, there isn't a right answer. Yeah. You know, it's individual to each individual person. So I, I, I really try and avoid. There's some things like you know having mentors or you know mm-hmm. learning and progressing those sorts of things. But you know, so so I think it's very individualistic. It was very easy for me because I wasn't earning much money. So to actually start something as a bit of a on the side and build that up, it's not like I was earning. 150 grand a year right i was earning about twelve thousand pound a year so all i needed to do was have something else that would give me a thousand pound a month and that that would you know if you went more than i needed so i think so i think it's it's you know very different some businesses require a lot of capital they are high risk but i'm i'm a great believer that wherever possible if you can de-risk it always look for what's the worst case scenario can you live with that? If you can't, then how can you de-risk that worst case scenario? Because the harsh reality is um, only one in 20 people are an entrepreneur. 19 out of 20 people in the general population are employed in a job. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is because they realize, you know, most entrepreneurs work longer, earn less, <laughs> have more stress. <laughs> right? It's not easy. You know, you know, we, we've both yeah. done it. We've been through the ups and the downs. We both work with businesses all the time and we see the challenges you know when you get it right and it works it's fantastic um so for me it was partly about the money but partly about the freedom the choice being my own boss i'd rather work 100 hours a week for myself than i would work you know 50 hours for somebody else because i'm the master of my own destiny so so yes if you can de-risk it then by you know with everything you do i would say think about the downside and see how you can mitigate it but at the end of the day 
you nothing ventured nothing gained you know you have to take risks in business in life you're either it's the old comfort zone thing you're either growing expanding getting out into your comfort zone or you're retreating because you're staying still you know if you're staying still you're actually going backwards because everyone else around you is is growing developing yeah no definitely and i love that that kind of what is the worst case scenario and can you live with it i think that's a great it's a great way, isn't it? But at some point, you have just got to step off and commit, haven't you? But there is that, how do you de-risk it in the interim? Yeah. And for some people, they can go straight in. Some people, they need to transcend and yeah. all of those kind of things. So as I understand it, that ropes course business was a huge success in terms of it grew rapidly. It You know, you developed sites with the likes of Centre Parks. and and But then along came the foot and mouth disease in 2001 and things took a bit of a turn. Yeah, exactly. So it was a great success and a great failure at the end. Um, <laughs> so eight, eight years of growth and then foot and mouth disease. Yeah. So, you know, panda- the, the, uh, the pandemic, um, it stopped the guys being able to go out onto land and build anything. Um, if we weren't building anything. We weren't getting paid. And so, yeah, we had to make the very difficult decision to put it into voluntary di- liquidation, lay off all the staff. Um, yeah. So that, that was a that was a pretty tough experience my income stopped you know assets got chewed up in that process fortunately i had a house um, that had gone up in value and we improved it we were able to sell that house move into rented accommodation um and that was what stopped me from going bankrupt wow wow i mean i just can't imagine being at that that point you know where you've got to take those sensible right decisions to wind up a business that you put your heart and soul into i mean Lessons that you took from that that perhaps you've taken on in your other businesses and successes that you'll go on to talk about? I mean, just key to understand some of those lessons learned. Yeah, definitely. And I think the um, I went from being a eternal optimist to a pessimist and just out in every day. I still do it now. What can go wrong? What can go wrong? Where's the risk? Somebody comes to me with an idea. Where's the risk? Yeah, it's the first question I ask is what I want to know. What's the downside? Um, the second thing, there were two other things. One was internal, one was external. External, what's going on in the macro market, right? So the old pestle analysis, political, economic, sociological, technological, legal, environmental. I'd read stuff like that in business books before, but it was just theory, right? It was just like, you've got this question and you need to do this. And it's like, no, what actually is happening in the political environment, what's happening with COVID and the economy? What's you know what are going to be the implications when we move through this and we've got all this government debt and you know all of these businesses and furlough scheme ends and all you know you really got to think into the future. So understanding macroeconomics um, and how that might affect my businesses um, that was a key learning point. And then I think internally. Um, Both myself and my business partner didn't come from a your background, right? Finance, Mm. accounting, bookkeeping. We employed somebody. And as we built up, we got to 60 staff. It was kind of out of control. We didn't really understand, you know, we were counting the money, paying people. But in terms of cash flow forecasts, understanding the financing needs of the business, having enough in reserve for a rainy day. You know, we had some working capital, but nowhere near enough to cope with something like, you know, you're not going to get any income for six months. That's, you know, we hadn't worst case scenario planned in that way. Um, yeah, so getting a lot stronger, um, you know, business is a game played by the numbers. 
Uh, and you know better than anybody, if you don't understand your numbers and you don't have a team of people that can support you in that area, you are not going to succeed, right? I've never met a really successful business person that is not really strong or has a core member of their team that really understands the numbers of their business. So improving my financial competence and building a team around me that could do that was critical to success. Yeah, you don't need to crunch the numbers yourself, but you need to understand, don't you, about the impact of finance yeah. on your business. And the one I talk about a lot is the cash flow cycle in the business. Yeah. You know, and and understanding how different events can affect that cash yeah. flow cycle, that working capital cycle. And that's yeah. the critical one. And then it's about key, key performance indicators that don't necessarily about the money, they're not all financial, but they're the things that you're going to understand will drive your business and can predict the future, which I suppose comes back to that pestle analysis around also understanding the environment that you're in yeah. and how that's going to change and evolve over time. So, so you've, you, you've sold the house. Yeah. Um, I assume a young family at this stage as well. Yeah. Uh, Lucy. So I had a stepson who was 11 and then um, Charlie were, or Lucy was seven months pregnant at the time when we put the business oh. into voluntary liquidation and we moved into a, uh, a rented house over in Poole in Dorset um, when she was uh, two weeks away from uh, from giving birth. So, yeah, so a sort of uh, newborn baby in a house with a leaky roof rented from a landlord that wouldn't fix the leaky roof. So I was sort of carrying this baby with a red bucket in the middle of the lounge catching water. So, uh, no, and no sort of income. Um, and fortunately, though, I did have some capital because of the house had gone up in value. Yeah. Um, so put that in the bank. So it gave me a bit of breathing space. Um, started a little import and export business quite quickly. Found a product. So it was a kind of a, a precursor to drop shipping and e-commerce, you know, right back in okay. the early 2000s. So actually that's something that, you know, I, I just saw the power of somebody else makes a product. You can actually do the sales and marketing, have a good margin between what you're buying it for, what you're selling it for no staff, outsourced everything, and all of a sudden I had a six-figure income coming in again, took the pressure off, built up capital. I was working about two days a week, played lots of tennis, went on parenting courses, you know, had a, a little girl as well. Um, so, yeah, had two years of base from 2002 to 2004. Nice income, virtual business, low time, being a dad, playing tennis, but then going on courses reading books, setting goals, thinking, right, I don't want to do this What's forever. Next? What's next? I want to, I want to do, I want something that ultimately, you know, the kind of the dream, I guess, for most people is how can you earn money that sustains you uh, without having to trade your time for that money, as well as having assets that go up in value. And that's what led me to get involved in property investing. Okay. Well, we'll come, we'll come to talk about the property and platinum property partners and the franchising and all of those things, but probably a good intervention because clearly at that point where you've dusted yourself down, you've just got on with it, you found an income stream, you built it. What astounds me and what I think is really interesting about your story, Steve, and it probably comes back to one of your fundamental principles is you then invested that income back into development, self-development, learning and becoming yeah. better before yeah. you really went off again. Yeah. So do you want to just talk to the listeners about, you know, your beliefs around personal development? Yeah, I mean, I think one of my mentors, always a guy called Jay Abraham, um, always says strategy always trumps tactics, you know. So so actually what, you know, strategy is 
harder to sort of um, define and implement and it's slower to actually get results from. But the, you know, the foundations, all external results that we achieve are the result of internal thinking, decision, you know, thoughts, feelings, actions, right? So success starts, Stephen Covey calls it, starts from the inside out. Um, so unless you're, I spoke on stage once actually with um, Stelios, with EasyJet, and it was, okay. a, it was a business startup show. And I always remember I was on before and then he went on after and he listened to my talk. And, uh, and he came on, he said, look, I feel like I'm a bit of a fraud because I'm talking to you as, as a startup show. Uh, and unlike Steve, you know, I didn't start with nothing. I went to 30 banks because I had this, uh, this idea for an airline called EasyJet. The banks turned me down. I went to my dad and he said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's an easy start. It's an easy start, easy right? start not easy jet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so I think for the reality is for most self-made um, entrepreneurs um, that actually it's about the thoughts, the decisions, the actions, the learning. You know, they have a massive bias for action, all of those sorts of things. So for me, it was kind of when I lost everything, one of my big aha moments was there's got to be people that have been there and done this, right? There's got to be other people. There's got to be giant I can learn from. So I bought books. I went on courses. But unlike what I call the shelf help brigade, people that buy loads of books but don't apply any of it or apply very little of it, you know, the course junkies, um, I would just go on it and I would immediately apply as many things as I could and put them into action. Um, so I think it's a it was a mix of not just personal development, professional development. So I did things like marketing courses with Jay Abraham, like NLP. I became a double NLP master practitioner, uh, not because I want to become a therapist, because I wanted to understand sales and communication and influence and how do you become more confident? How do you become more effective? And NLP is the study of success in any field. So I just, you know, so it was a very practical thing. Um, Stephen Covey, the seven habits of highly effective people. Again, you know, yes, it's personal development, but how do I become a highly effective person, right? And I think it's a lot more common now with what you see on YouTube and Instagram and whatever. But, you know, you go back 25, 30 years and you talk to people about this stuff. And even still today, I think in this culture with people that are over sort of 40 or 50 years of age, like, oh, I don't need that. That's not for me. Why would I read books? Well, you know, um, what was it? Mark Zuckerberg reads a book a week. Warren Buffett actually takes holidays for a week or two. Uh, no, Warren Buffett spends five hours a day reading. Um, Bill Gates goes on holidays for a whole week and takes like literally a suitcase of books with him. So you, you dig into most successful people and you will find they have a massive bias for learning um, yeah. about business, the economy, money, personal development, whatever it might be that they're interested in. Yeah, I look at I, we we talked. You mentioned earlier, you know, the the cycles of you know of business, and I look at my own journey, and I think the times my businesses have kicked forward, yeah, have been when I've actually created some time and space, yeah, done some development, picked a book up, and then followed up on it, or actually had that thought, given my time, the space, my mind, the space to stop, think, and then take action. And the times when it probably isn't going so well is when it I've just become frantic and I'm just spinning plates. Yeah. And I'm not doing any of that activity. And, yeah. you know, and all of a sudden, yeah, you lose, you become, yeah, you lose your sense of purpose and direction, don't you? And actually, you're not following, you know. 
uh, that correct path. So are you, I'm going to ask you two questions around this. Are you still an avid learner now? I suppose the answer has got to be yes to that. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I go through phases though. I think, you know, one thing when I um, talk to people about it, it's not, you know, I don't read a book a day or a book a week or whatever. Sometimes I'll go really deep and I'll feel like there's other times where it's like, I just need to get stuff done. So actually I will go through periods where I almost detox on new information and new learning because it's about the application, right? You, like I say, there's so many people that do shelf help or learn and learn, but don't apply. And there's mm-hmm. times where you've just got to knuckle down and get on with it. So, um, and I think also the way you learn is very, I rarely will read a book from start to finish. I quite often read it backwards or I'll dip in or I'll dip out mm-hmm. or I'll, you know, I, I did some speed reading courses. Um, and one of the key things that, the guy taught me as well as getting up from like 300 words a minute to a thousand words a minute. So I tripled my reading speed by just doing a, like an online sort of one hour speed reading course. Um, he was just like, when you read, just see it like a newspaper that what you're looking for, you're scanning for almost like the headlines, you know, and what are the key things? Mm-hmm. If you start reading a story that sort of goes for four pages within a book and it doesn't interest you, has no right, just skip the story, you know, move, move on. So, um, so I think, you know, I went from books to video to courses. I used to do quite a lot of courses, but actually I found coaching, mentoring, dealing with people on a one-to-one basis was one of the things. So a lot of people I work with now are non-exec directors or advisors or giants that have actually achieved some of the very practical things that that, that I want to achieve. Fantastic. So you've taken it that stage on. And then the second question yeah. is around... Um, and again, you've sort of alluded to it is, you know, there is, there's that, those people, you know, the self shelf kind of people, but you know, actually they're trying, you know, but then you've got all these girls out there, you know, the fake it to make it brigade and all of the kind of selling a course for 999 or 997 as it typically is. Yeah. And there's that kind of brigade there that are just playing sometimes to the weakest link nearly or to the instincts of others and not actually providing value. What's your feeling on those kind of courses and how do we steer people away from them to go on the right path (laughs) yeah i mean i think the i think that i mean my biggest gripe with that industry um is that they are um they're just not being honest in their marketing right so i think there's a place for a lot of information and a lot of knowledge and a lot of learning and actually whether it's a book or a course for 97 quid or whatever if it's promoted in the right way, like in America, they actually make you at the bottom of any promotional that that your chances of repeating the successes above are tiny. You know, there's no, you know, it's, so there comes with this massive disclaimer and doesn't sort of happen in this country. So I think if people are honest about the marketing, that mm. they're just trying to sell hopes to dreamers, right? That That's what a lot of people are doing. It's like, you can do this, you can do that. But it's like, no. You have to put in hours of work, right? I always refer back to the one of the famous studies that was done on mastery, right? It takes 10,000 hours and seven years for the average person to achieve mastery in one discipline. Seven years wow. and 10,000 hours, right? So, you know, yeah. yes, you can do a get-rich-quick course, but are you willing to back that up with all, all, all of that investment? Um, so that's my biggest gripe with it. And, you know, I know that industry inside out. I've helped put um, two people in prison in the property sector that were basically conning people. Um, 
you know, so so I think I um, yeah, so I'm all for personal professional development. I'm all for people investing in their education as long as they go into it with their eyes wide open. Um, and you know, but that's why I think books are one of the best, you know, one of the best investments you can make, right? Somebody has spent two, three, four, five years writing the bloody thing yeah and then they've got and we've both been there we've both written books they don't yeah. write themselves easily do they so you're taking all of that knowledge from your whole life then spending one to five years to write the bloody thing and get it edited and get it published and then the thing's being sold for five ten fifteen quid right so for me it's just like and then you can go on the internet and say right i want a book summary so you can go, or go on blinkist you know, and you can get the, the essence of that book in 10, 20, 15, 20 minutes or watch a YouTube video on it because loads of people would have done YouTube videos. So I think you can actually learn a heck of a lot by not spending very much money um, and taking action and, you know, and learning from things. Having mentors, like I say, is for me, that's been the difference that's made the difference in my life and in most people's lives is the right mentors, the right non-exec directors, the right consultants, the right advisors that framework of people around you that have a vested interest in your success, but they're not selling hopes to dreamers. They're actually dealing with yeah. you in the moment on your business or on your challenge. That's what I think is super powerful. Yeah. So while you're learning and developing, you've got your mentor there while you do those hard yards and yeah. there's that support, isn't there? Yeah. Um, and I think I've heard you speak um, and I love that you've got this really great phrase, you know, always, have a hand up always have a hand down yeah totally yeah com completely you know every i mean i just before this i was on the i did a zoom one hour try to do a free mentoring half an hour hour session every week 52 a year with aspiring entrepreneurs they might be kids they might be homeless people they might be people that are running companies or whatever i just do it on a pro bono basis 52 a year and i just did one with a you know, 23 year old Italian lab that's got 3000 Instagram followers and wants is building this kind of life changing self confidence course for for Italian boys that are 15, 20 years of age, you know, um, okay. so it's just an example of giving yeah. you know, a hand down. But then one of the things that that I say to people is like, I've done this for you. Now I want you to pay it forward and you go on and you do that through, you know, so imagine if every business owner or every person did one a week or one a month, just a pro bono free kind of um, mentoring coaching session. What, what, you know, what an impact yeah. that would have. It would have an incredible, incredible effect wouldn't it, on the economy and the world and, and really? people. Yeah. So going back to your journey, you've, you've, You've got to this point, you've done the learning, you've got the six-figure income, but you know there's a new next. And you, and you revert back perhaps more to what the, you know, the family, your parents, and back into property. And I suppose you'd made money yourself through property, so it was a natural step. So what, what happened and how did it come about, Steve? Yeah, it's, it's parental influences to some degree, but then all the people that I'd met, my parents' friends that had been successful, the common denominator was they had invested in property. You know, yeah. and I just remember just hearing it, saw my mum, they bought this hairdressing shop, did it up, that produced an income. And then bizarrely, um, looking back on it now, um, at the age of 11, we moved in, they bought a big, uh, they sold the home where we were in a little semi-detached house and bought this massive block of flats, 16 flats, run down as anything with sitting tenants in 1978, um, stretched themselves massively to do it financially. 
Um, and then basically they, we, we all worked together, sort of family business, did it up. I'd spend all my holidays uh, either doing up flats as a carpenter's mate with my dad um, okay. or working for free, doing the cleaning. They were holiday, we turned them into holiday flats. So new people would come in every Saturday. We'd have to clean 16 flats, change the linen, the bedding, do the garden, all that sort of thing. So, yeah, so I kind of grew up with that, really. Um, and, um, yeah, never really knew how to get into it. And then because I had a bit of money, and I think the second aha moment was I'd sold a house, and that's what stopped me going bankrupt, you know. I bought yeah. it for 160 grand and sold it a couple of years later for 215,000. So, all of a sudden I've made 55 grand tax free and I'm like, yeah. yeah, this is pretty good. And I did it on my have first. More of this. <laughs> yeah. Have some more of this. And it was at that, you know, the golden age, if you like, interest rates are obviously a lot higher um, than they are today, but it was in that golden age of property doubling in value every seven years, you know? Um, yeah. So yeah, so it was that, but because I'd lost everything. And as you said earlier, you know, the cash flow cycle is so important that, I, I researched a lot of different property and honed in on a strategy of multiple occupancy, renting houses to young working professional people that yeah. got about three times more rental income than renting it to a family. And, and right. that's what we focused on. It was highly income producing properties, HMOs, houses in multiple occupations, they're called today. So yeah, so you yeah, then, then had an asset base that you yeah. could hold on to, but yet also had a higher income stream coming from them and a sure. higher yield as a result. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and was it about built to, you end up, you know, running a property franchise business and we'll come on to that, but was that always the initial idea? Is that where you were heading or was it always about, to begin with, just building your own portfolio? Yeah, it was, it was building my own portfolio, financial uh, independence really enough money coming in from the portfolio to sustain the level of um, income have a pension an asset base that we could kind of leverage in future some houses keep them long term for the kids so they've all got properties so they can get on the you know they'll be straight on the property ladder um, yeah so it was pension security and, and an income not I didn't want to be Richard Branson I didn't want to buy Necker Island or you know have a you know 200 foot sun seek or anything like that it was just get to that first level of financial independence and then make some choices and decisions so i got up to 20 houses um over a three-year period and then this had started doing what i love you know i love doing which was coaching teaching mentoring help my sister do it my brother-in-law's family then it went to friends okay and i started teaching other people and then it was actually my accountant um, that said to me, looked at my accounts and said, you should franchise your business. You're taking so much money from rental income. You should franchise your business. And yeah, did a beauty parade of franchise consultants. And six months later, started the franchise in July 2007. Wow. It's interesting, isn't it? That, that advice, that light bulb moment and off, and off you go. What, what were the differences that you then found in developing a sort of franchise proposition of business compared to perhaps a traditional services or product business? Because lots of us with businesses think, could we franchise it? What would it be like? But there must be a complete difference in developing that model. Absolutely right. I mean, you know, A, you need a robust business model that is going to be scalable, replicable in different territories. It's going to have to be able to withstand different economic factors so it's hard enough you know what is it they say 
Um, you know, uh, 90% of businesses fail in the first two years and then 90% that are left are gone in the next um, sort of yeah. up to five-year period. So, so to create a business model that is profitable, that's the first challenge. Then to understand that whatever it is you want to franchise, as well as being an expert in that, you actually have to be an expert in um, recruiting, training and developing people. Right, it's a people development business. You've got to select the franchisee or franchise partner, you know, and make sure you make a good choice that they've got commitment, they've got skills, they're going to work hard, all of those sorts of things. And then you've got to put a whole support framework. So, you know, at at, at the end, um, at the end of the sort of franchise journey for me was basically a, um, you know, we had about four hundred franchisees. Some started a week ago. And some have been doing it for nearly 15 years, right? So wow. you're supporting all those businesses. Some have only got buying their first house. Some have got a portfolio of 20 houses with over 100 tenants. Um, so it's, yeah, it, it's a complex business that um, don't underestimate the complexity. And if you're not yeah. passionate or you don't have a team that's passionate about supporting other business owners, forget it because that's essentially what it is. Yeah, that's yeah. a great way of putting it. I've never thought about it in that way. It's that it's that training, development, and support of the business owners and the selection. But you've got to have the right business model as well. And I think too many people probably focus on they think they've got the business model. Yeah. But actually, then when they try and franchise it, forget that second part, which is about how do you train, develop, support. And yeah. I know that's one of the things that Platinum and Property Partners was always at the forefront of the minds. How do you support them? Yeah. Not just to buy the first property, but succeed in the years that then follow, isn't it? Yeah. And I think the one of the reasons it became the fastest growing franchise and, you know, a, a roaring success was because at my core and the team that we had and, you know, still there, um, it is a passion for coaching, training, developing people, right? I got bored yeah. of houses, right? When I had 20, it was the three T's, toilets, tenants and tradespeople, right? So 90% yeah. of property investing is problematic. But it's a mental pivot to say, well, actually, if you've got 80 tenants, at least they're paying you rent for the problems that they cause, you know, yeah. whereas if you've got 80 staff, you're actually paying them and you're still getting problems. So <laughs> <laughs> it's, it was just like a, a, a bit of a mental pivot. And um, yeah, so so I think it was it was great. And, you know, I built it up. I sort of semi retired, became a non-exec director in 2017. And then um, last year, I sort of officially um sort of retired still right. you know still uh, have a commercial interest in the business but I gifted uh with my business partner um 20 of my shares to the staff so I'm, I'm just not involved now um you know in, right. in any capacity so i focus very much on digital and e-commerce and and the, the new emerging economy yeah which is the, the next kind of pivot so it's interesting again talking to you in the you know, 35 minutes that we've been talking is is this kind of feeling that you maybe it's that feeling of looking to the future but you're finding the next thing the next pivot the next opportunity learning about it researching about it and then trying to find and seize your way into that opportunity yeah. and that obviously leads into the kind of bulk digital world so tell our listeners about bulk digital steve yeah so i guess i um i i like seeing emerging i just love business right and i love businesses that help people uh, and I saw 
what I'd done with PPP was great and that was going to continue and didn't really need me um, to, to be involved. It was a, a system and machine that had been built. Um, so saw the way the world was going with digital marketing, Facebook and other forms of social media advertising, that attention was going from the traditional ways of shopping and going to the high street to buying through a phone or through a, through a computer. Um, the advent of things like Shopify and just this massive, I mean, you see it all the time, right? All the, the retail apocalypse and all the high street shops, Debenhams have gone, Topshop have gone, you know, all these major, major brands that we grew up with. Woolworth was one of the early ones. Um, you know, the, the value proposition has just changed massively. So I saw that happening. So started um, uh, an Amazon brand and then actually a business that helped launch over 100 brands on Amazon from 2016 through to 2018. Um, and then, yeah, 2017, a great way to kind of learn is uh, on the marketing side was having a marketing agency in London. So I teamed up with a business partner. We built that very quickly um, on the rising tide of e-commerce, which has really just been accelerated massively by COVID. They say it's sort of accelerated the growth of e-commerce by about five years. Um, and then we have some of our own brands as well now that we we launch and take to market. So we've got a, a pet brand, a dog supplement brand called Buddy and Lola, which is our own owned brand. Um, okay. So that yeah, that, that that's going great guns. Um, yeah, so it's about supporting other business owners through the agency, but primarily it's about building our own brands. That's why we started the agency was get expertise, learn, support some business owners with their businesses but also use that expertise in our own brands. So that's, uh, that's, that's the big thing for, for the next decade. All right. So that's the new opportunity, the new venture and the new place where Steve Bolton's going to spend his time, is it? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. And any tips and advice for people looking to get into that kind of e-commerce world? Um, it's bloody complicated. <laughs> so it's not one level. Don't go into it. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of money in it. And with a lot of money comes a lot of competition. Um, yeah. So there's also a lot of complexity. So so I think, you know, you, you see brands like Huel, like Gymshark and others that, you know, they've, they've built billion pound businesses, right, in three years, in five years. So whenever there's that sort of money to be made, there's a lot of money that follow, follows it. Um, so I think there's a lot of complexity. But as I did with, um, you know, I think one, one of the things that I've managed to do very well, uh, I did it in property, is kind of figure out what I call the holy grail metrics, which you talked earlier, Warren, about KPIs in a business. Mm -hmm. You know, so actually in most businesses with, with property, it's like, how much can you buy the house for? So what's the purchase price? How many bedrooms can you get? How much rent can you get per bedroom? What's your occupancy level going to be? And then what are the costs to run that property? So there's only really five things, right? And if you get the right combination of you buy at the right price, you have enough bedrooms, you can fill it for long enough at the right rent and you manage your costs well, you can make 300 times more rental income, 300% more rental income. E-commerce, the holy, what I call the holy grail metrics are similar. There's about seven of them, but the key ones are what's the average order value? How much are people going to spend with you every month, right? What's the cost of acquiring the customer, the CPA or the ACOS on Amazon? So cost of acquisition of the customer. So, you know, so if you've got a monthly subscription product that's 50 quid, 
and you can acquire each customer at say an average cost of 10 pounds and you've got then a gross margin um you know of 60 percent of 70 percent on your product you're making profit before overhead you're making a gross profit on every purchase right and these are very these can be very lean businesses then if you've got a customer lifetime value of like 150 200 quid because they're going to come back again and, and buy from you you know then you've got your gross margin then you've got your, your net margin and that's why you're seeing some of these businesses being valued on a multiple of revenue three to seven times revenue multiple mm -hmm. is quite common certainly three to five revenue multiples why because the buyers that buy them know that once you get a certain level of scale once you're doing about 100 grand a month the overheads are really low so even though it's three to five times you're actually looking at you know a very profitable company and we've helped some businesses go from a thousand pound a month to a million pound a month in sales with just throwing off phenomenal levels of profit being acquired for tens of millions of pounds so that's what i'm aiming to do is build a number of hundred million pound businesses but we're right. moving fast and we're investing quite a lot of money um and and i think the great thing about it you end up with hundreds of thousands or millions of customers that you can yeah. promote other products to if you've Cross got into yeah if you want to do philanthropy and make a difference you can feed it's it's just kind of 10xing what i've done before in a sector that's growing very fast, both in terms of the value of the businesses we're creating, but more importantly, the social impact that we can have through those businesses, because we've got so many customers and we can reach so many people. Brilliant. I can just see, I can see you on the video, but our listeners can hear the passion in your yeah. voice as well and that energy that's coming across, which is great. And I love that term, the holy grail metrics, far yeah. better than KPIs. What are the holy grail metrics, <laughs> listeners, for your business? I yeah. love that. I absolutely, I've written that down. I'll take that one away with me. Um, yeah. And you just talked about giving and charity. And I know that's something that's really, you know, to sort of round up our conversation, Steve, um, you know, the conversation's been all about business, making money, succeeding, all of those kind of things. But I also know, and it's clear with anybody that does any research on you and, and, and things that are important to you is giving as well, you know, and not just giving your time that we talked about, you know, in terms of put a hand up, put a hand down and those kind of things, but making sure that you're giving back to good causes and can you you know i think all of us you know that appeals to all of us but you, you're taking it that one step further you've made a commitment as a family that you're going to give away 51 percent uh of your wealth um yep. and do you want to just a, a bit again i think it'd be good for our listeners just to hear some of your thoughts values principles around you know charitable giving and and those kind of things yeah definitely i think it um two big influences for me on it were my mum you know she's the kind of person mm. would give to charity but we'd be driving along she'd stop outside of the bus stop and you know there'd be two two ladies there and she'd go you're going to bingo ladies and they'd be like yeah jump in so she'd save them the bus fare and we'd have these two ladies in the back of the car and she'd drop them off <laughs> at bingo you know so all, all through my childhood my mum was just a an eternal giver and she she still is now um, and then the other thing, you probably remember it, um, but, you know, Live Aid and actually mm. seeing the impact that all these pop stars, because it was like during the 80s, right, when it was... It was 85, wasn't it, or something like that, yeah. yeah. Margaret Thatcher, Stock Market, Yuppies, 
um, you know, the uh, Wall Street movie, the first time that came out, that sort of thing. It was all about making loads of money at the expense of everybody else. And then it was this group of pop stars that actually wanted to make a difference in, in Africa and that sort of thing. So, and then more, you know, and then later you saw like um, Bono and Bill Gates and the Giving Pledge and all these billionaires, Warren Buffett, basically saying, we're going to give more than 50% of our wealth away. Um, so that's really where it came from. And I think my real passion for it was ignited more when I applied uh, or tried to apply for the the giving pledge. Uh, but then okay. me because I'm not <laughs> even close to being a billionaire. Um, so I was a club that I wasn't able to join. I didn't like that. Um, and I just thought there's got to be lots of other people that, you know, do good work and uh, and want to help others. So for me, I have a vision of, of a foundation, a Bolt Foundation in the future. That's part of our, our roadmap and our plan. Um, but essentially, all I've done really is support Jeremy Gilly at Peace One Day. Uh, I support Crisis as a philanthropist for homelessness because that tied in with the property stuff that we were doing. Um, we now support the Dogs Trust and a lot of dog shelters because we have a business that is very active. Mm. So I think there's a you know, sort of, you can look at it two ways. There's a kind of the mercenary and the missionary. Uh, and yeah. so the missionary is like the good feelings you get and all that sort of stuff. The mercenary is actually, it's been proven now that a lot of consumers will want to spend their money. It's not necessarily the deciding factor, but it's a hygiene factor, right? You've got to have yeah. good corporate social responsibility. You've got to be making a positive, positive difference in the world. And, and it's really driven by the millennial generation who are, the most socially aware and socially conscious generation that we've ever had in in history um, you know so so i think it there's a mercenary mercenary and missionary element to it it makes you feel good all, all of those sorts of things but um yeah i think i would encourage anybody that's not doing it that is cynical well if you're cynical do it for business reasons right focus on yeah. it will help your bottom line it's not actually the best reason for doing it but no. you know it's one way of winning people over um, I, I think, you know, and, and there's other, I've met some of some amazing people by being involved in different charities and not just giving money, but helping them solve problems. You know, there's an orphanage in Uganda, um, that was one of the first things that I supported and I went over there, had a look around and, you know, understood their finances. And basically they were paying rent on the dormitories that the kids were living in and, you know, buying didn't have any fresh water and I said okay how much are you paying in rent and I did the sums and then how much would it cost to actually build the dormitories and it was 12 months rent right <laughs> you buy the land and build the buildings and you never have to pay rent again yeah but Steve we struggle to make next month's rent where would where would we find 12 months worth of rent for them you know and so we raised that money built them dormitories built them buildings bought them land to farm got their own well help them, um, you know, put some of their kids through university. So it was very much a how do you make something self-sustaining? And with Peace One Day, I helped Jeremy create a patrons program that actually generated a lot of money. And we used to do this kind of thing. We used to do business talks and uh, teamed up with other people. So, yeah, it's about kind of, you know, making a difference in a way that is meaningful to you, but also connects with the vision and the mission of your business as well. I think it's more beneficial if you do it that way. 
Yeah, I'm absolutely with you, and I wholeheartedly support that. And I, I think there is a there's a piece about it is about giving money, but it's about giving your time and your expertise as well. And one of the things I'm passionate about is I say our businesses operate within a community. Now we've got to be supportive of that community, yeah, because it actually it's that community that sustains us. Yeah, definitely. And actually, be be proud of the community that we're part of, and do what we can to support it. And that's about giving time, not necessarily giving money and giving expertise that yeah. will make a difference. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um, Steve, uh, thank you for being a guest on the Evolve to Succeed podcast. I always end with one question and I'm intrigued by your answer to this question. And that's going to be, what's your definition of success? Uh, well, I'm going to cheat um, because uh, I haven't been able to better a definition of success that I think came from Earl Nightingale, who was one of the founding fathers. He used to, I think in the 50s and 60s, they um, created as the founder, founding of co-founder of Nightingale Conant. And they were one of the first creators of rec, personal and professional development records about goal setting okay. and success. And, and so his definition of success was it's the progressive realization of worthwhile goals. Progressive realization of worthwhile goals. So, are you making progress that is worthwhile and meaningful towards um, goals that are worthy? And because I think too many people, and I've done it myself, we see success as a de destination. You know, mm -hmm. when I get this, or when I do that, or if this happens, or if that happens, or if I sell my company, or if I buy this house, or you know, it's like a yeah. it's a moment in time as opposed to a continual lifelong process of the achievement of goals that are worthwhile. Perfect. Thank you, Steve. As I say, thank you for being a great guest on the Evolve to Succeed podcast. You're welcome. I hope that's of value to people. So I told you that'd be a great conversation. With such an interesting journey and outlook, how could it not be? For me, the key takeaways, other than the holy grail metrics, were Steve's thoughts on the importance of personal development, how dedicating yourself to reading and learning and improving yourself day by day, year by year, is such an underrated investment. I particularly identified with the conversation around this because, as you probably know by now, it is this belief in the power of personal growth and development that inspired me to found Evolve. Another favorite subject of mine and one that came up so well during the course of this podcast was the incredible impact mentorship can have. Whether you are the mentor or the one being mentored, that invaluable input, support and direction of others can really accelerate your learning and provide you with that one trusted individual to whom you can turn in both the good and challenging times. So do you have a mentor? Have you put your hand down to mentor someone else? What were your experiences? Would love to hear about them at Evolve. If you want to learn more about the services offered by Evolve, our peer groups, our coaching, our events, when we can have them in the real world, but for now, our webinars, or you just want to subscribe to our weekly insights and newsletter, then please do go to evolvemembers.com. You'll also learn more there about the co-working space that we operate in Ashley Cross Import. Thank you for listening to this episode. And if you have enjoyed the episode and you aren't already, then please do subscribe to future episodes. And it would really help us if you could rate and review the podcast. So thank you for listening. And for that now, goodbye.